Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I want to encourage you this morning with a word. We've been doing this series called To Know the Heart of God. Especially in times like these, people want to know God's heart. People want to know what God is up to. Does he care? Does he see? Is he involved? You know, does he feel what we feel? Uh, is he aware of the, of the struggles and the stress and the anxiety? And so we've been doing this series called To Know the Heart of God by looking at the life of Jesus, by looking at this grand statement, the greatest statement that has ever been made about who God is. It, it carries the authority above every other opinion or rumor or philosopher or, or you know, post on Facebook about what some guy sitting in his basement thinks about who Jesus was. The truth is, is that the, or, or who God was and who God is. And the truth is, is that Jesus told us, Jesus showed us, Jesus revealed to us what God is like. The depths of God, the heart of God, the love of God, the truth of God. And that's what we've been looking at together as a church over these past few weeks. And, and, and I believe that this is something that God wants us to know about him. God doesn't want us to run around with falsehoods and, and, and misperceptions and, and, and false ideas about who he is, rumors and, and, and opinions. He wants us to know him for who he truly is. I think we all have that desire. We all want people to know us for who we truly are, as opposed to some idea that they have about us. And so God actually wants everybody to understand who he is. This is important. In, a he in Hebrews 11 verse 6, it talks about faith, which means to believe. And God wants us to believe, and he wants our belief to be based in truth. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, those who come to God must believe that he is, that he exists, that he is real. And so it's not okay just to believe that he exists. He wants us to also, he wants those that believe in him to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That God is also good, that he rewards, that he loves, that he cares. He wants us to not just know that he exists, but also to know his nature. In, in uh, John chapter 4, we see a woman at the well and Jesus meets her there. And she doesn't recognize Jesus up front. But later on, she realizes that he is sent from God. And, and she asks him a question about worship. And Jesus answers by saying to her, this is the kind of people, the kind of worshiper that the Father seeks to worship Him. This is how God wants us to worship Him. He's looking for those who worship in spirit. In other words, it's coming from your heart. It's true. It's authentic. It's real. It's spiritual. And in truth. In other words, we got to be basing our worship on the truth of who God is. Like, How can you worship in truth if you don't know the God that you're worshiping? And moreover, why? Why would you worship someone or something that you do not know? And so often we blame people for not honoring God or worshiping God with their lives and with their actions. But how could they worship such a God if they don't know who he is? And that's why we're here. That's what we believe our mission on earth is and what God has called us to do is to help just put Jesus on display, put his life on display, because through the life of Jesus, through the sacrifice of the cross, we get to encounter God. We get to know Him and we get to grow in our relationship with Him. Bertrand Russell, who was a, a British philosopher and mathematician, um, you know, he, he, he was also a well-known atheist. And he was once asked, 
What would you do if you died and found out that you were wrong about God? And now you're standing in front of him. What would you say to God if you found out that you were wrong about your atheism? And what Bertrand Russell said, and I know that Richard Dawkins has, has repeated the sentiment for himself as well, is I would say, sir, why did you go through such pains to hide yourself? Or why did you take such pains to hide yourself? But the life of Jesus declares that that entire idea that God is somehow hiding himself is a false idea. God is not hiding himself. He came to be amongst us. He revealed himself. He lived with us. In, in fact, in what must be the most staggering truth in all of human history. God did not just reveal himself to us. He didn't just stand at a distance and shout down, this is who I am. He came to be with us. In fact, he became one of us. God, the creator of heaven and earth, put skin and bone on, lay down. Jesus laid down his rights, emptied himself of his rights as God and was born as a human baby in a stable somewhere out in the Middle East. What an incredible reality that God came to be with us. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility. Jesus humbled himself. He laid down his rights. He emptied himself and he became a man. He became a human being living on this earth like you and me. Though he was still 100% God, he was not operating in the power as God. He was operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. He had emptied himself and become a servant among us. We see in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation that there are four creatures around the throne. And these four creatures represent each particular perspective that the different gospels show us of Jesus. Four distinct perspectives of Jesus, who he is and what he is like. His life reveals God's heart towards us. We've looked at how Jesus was the ox, a servant in the book of Mark, how he was the Messiah, the eagle in the book of John, how he was the king of kings in Matthew's gospel as the lion. And today I want to share a message with you entitled, He is the Son of Man, looking at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, as God, become man, become flesh. This is described in, in Luke's gospel, and it is represented by the fourth creature we see around the throne, which is the image of a man. You know, life involves so many emotions. Living in this world involves so many things that we deal with, that we encounter, that we battle with, that we have to go through, so much to endure and to navigate and to work through. And I'm sure if you're like me, you've made many mistakes. And often we feel overwhelmed. And it's amazing how when you're feeling overwhelmed, and you may actually be feeling this way right now, 
that when you're feeling overwhelmed, it's the small things that can trigger the ultimate meltdown. Like you're doing fine and then something really small happens and it's just like your life has ended and it's over and you cannot go on any longer. You know, like when you want to go get something out of your car and this is just something that every time this happens to me, I feel like, you know, I just want to depart from this life. That's maybe a little bit dramatic. But, but you know, when you, when you want to go get something out of your car and you walk over to your car and you were 100% sure that it was unlocked. In fact, when you walked past your keys, you thought to yourself, should I take them just in case? And then you convinced yourself and said, no, I know and I am confident and I trust that my car is unlocked and whatever I'm going to go get out of my car, I'll simply be able to open the door and get it out. And when you get to the door and you pull the handle and the door doesn't budge, it doesn't click, it doesn't release, you realize I was wrong. I should have taken my keys. And just the effort of having to turn around and walk back into the house to go and fetch your keys is too much to bear. Like many times I've thought to myself, I'm just going to sit here now and, and I'm just going to wonder and ponder on what the meaning of my life even is. You know, just the frustration of that car door not opening. In moments like these, when you, when you knock over a drink that you had just ordered or you are you know, requested by your kid to tighten the straps on his bicycle helmet, or you drop a saucer off of the table and it lands on your pinky toe, or the dustbin bag rips, or you put fuel into your car. How's this one? You put fuel into your car and then you realize that you've left your wallet at home. And then you sit there for a moment trying to decide whether it's better to just drive home and go fetch your wallet or become a fugitive of the law. And at that moment, it's like, I'm not sure this is a tough decision. Life can get real, real quick. I'm sure you'll agree with me. And, and, and you may be feeling this way right now in this moment. And it would be easy for us to think, well, what does God know about dealing with all this nonsense, with all this stuff that we have to go through every day? Like what on earth does he know about being human and about experiencing these frustrations? Surely he just sits up in heaven somewhere and, and he is far removed from what is happening in the economy or in our politics or, or you know, with a coronavirus across the globe or, or with body corporates. If you live in a complex, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Body corporates are the worst, but not so. God is not far removed. He knows exactly because he lived as a human being on this earth with us. He is the son of man. In fact, that was the title that Jesus referred to himself by more than any other title. He was essentially communicating and, 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 and telling us that he is and has become like us, that he has taken on the form of a human being. He's the son of man, even though he's God. He knows what it's like to live on this earth with us. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Here's a description, just in case you were thinking that Jesus must have had the stately life, that he must have, you know, he's obviously the son of God. He was obviously incredibly privileged and well-liked and, and adorned wherever he went. Here's a description of uh, his life growing up in Isaiah 53 and verse 2. 
And I'm reading from the message paraphrase of the Bible. It says, the servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over a man who suffered and knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. That's how Jesus experienced. That's, the, that's his experience growing up in this life. Nothing stately about him. He was despised and rejected by people. He was passed over and forgotten. He was acquainted with sorrow, a man of griefs. He knew pain firsthand. What does God know about the pain of living in this broken world? Turns out he knows quite a lot. Luke especially highlights Jesus as human, giving us insight into his humanity. Luke was a doctor. And so naturally his concern was for people. He was also a Gentile. So he was one of the few disciples that, that wasn't a Jew. And he would have marveled at the fact that Jesus, who was considered a Jewish teacher or rabbi, would associate with him. And so he focused on the beautiful humanity that he found in Jesus. His gospel is full of the details of Jesus' life from that human perspective. Luke's gospel is the only gospel to record this prayer in Luke 22, verse 41 to 44, the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That I want us to look at today, and I want to look at some of the phrases in this moment of where Jesus' humanity was put on display. This is only found in the book of Luke, this, the, the, the details of what he experienced in that moment. And I believe it encourages us to know what Jesus experienced and the fact that he, that he feels the way that we feel. In Luke twenty-two forty-one, it says, And he withdrew from them, from his disciples, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a moment of agony for Jesus just before he is arrested on the night that he's betrayed. He's in the garden. His hour to give himself up to be crucified has come. And his humanity in this moment wants out. Jesus wants a plan B. He's asking the father, is there any way that we can, that we can sidestep or skip this process? I don't want to do it. And Jesus isn't saying this in some frivolous way, he is experiencing some extreme agony in this moment. So much so that his sweat turns to blood. This is a documented, rare physiological phenomenon called hematidrosis. And it happens when a person is under such stress that capillaries under the skin begin to rupture and sweat out along with their sweat. Luke tells us how Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw away. And the first little phrase that I want to look at in that verse is that he knelt down. Just imagine that for a moment. Jesus knelt down. He had a physical body 
And I can imagine that as he went into that garden and knelt down onto the hard ground beneath his knees, that he felt the discomfort of the ground. Jesus felt pain. He felt cold, hunger, thirst, stress. He grew tired or weary. And maybe you're saying, hey, those are all the things that I'm feeling right now. But what I love about this verse and what it shows us about Jesus and the love of God for us is that Jesus pushed on in spite of all of those human emotions in order to honor God with his body. He knelt down. That's a sign of surrender. It's a statement of submission. Regardless of how our human emotions would lead us, we still have the choice to submit ourselves to the goodness and the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 encourages us to do this when it says you were bought with a price. God has paid for you. He has ransomed you. He has bought you back. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. We get to offer our bodies and what we do with our bodies and the way we live with our bodies. We get to offer them as living sacrifices, as it says in Romans 12. The Bible encourages us not to offer our bodies up as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead to use them for good. And we get to do this because Jesus offered his body first. He gave himself for us. His grace empowers us to be able to live the life that God calls us to live in these physical bodies. The next little bit that Jesus says in there is that he says, not my will. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. I, I, I don't want to do it. But even so, not my will, but yours be done. What a powerful statement. Once again, it's an understanding of who the Father is, his goodness, his wisdom, his grace that causes us to be able to say, God, I don't want, even though I've got all these feelings right now, and I definitely have a will, I definitely have something that I would prefer to do in this situation, but yet, because you are my God, because I trust in you, I choose to surrender that will and allow you to do what is best for me and for everybody else. Hebrews 5 verse 8 clearly shows us that Jesus had a human will or his own will and that he could have chosen to walk away in that moment. His humanity clearly wanted out of the situation, which is why he prays to the Father saying, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but in, in essence he's saying, I don't want to do this. If you're willing, please take it away. How often do we experience this as believers? You know, when God's word comes to us, when we know in our hearts that God is calling us or asking us or, 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 or you know, leading us to do something specific, but our flesh, even though the spirit may be willing, the flesh is weak and we resist God. Often we harden our hearts. You may, you may be resisting him right now. The thing that unlocks that resistance, the thing that calls rebels like us and causes rebels like us to lay down our arms and to follow and to submit and to surrender is not the command it's not some threat, it's the goodness of God. It's when we come to trust in Him, it's when we come to believe in Him, it's when we come to, to believe that even though we don't understand, God knows best. And in these moments, we can choose to surrender. 
In these moments, we can, we can, like Jesus, say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe you're in a situation like that, and maybe that's the prayer that you need to pray. Look what happens next. I love what happens next. As Jesus surrenders his will, it says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. You see, God is asking us to surrender to his will. But what he's not asking us is for us to do so in our own strength or by ourselves. All of heaven comes to the aid of a surrendered believer. And we are strengthened by the presence of God's Holy Spirit within us, by the grace of God that resides, that has taken up residence in our lives, we find a supernatural ability to fulfill the will of God and to surrender our own beyond what would have been possible for us in our own strength. And we need to learn to trust in that ability with us, that strengthening, that grace. You might be saying, I can't do this, God. How many times have you said that? I know I've said it many times. I can't do it, God. This is too much for me. Yes, it is. But it definitely isn't too much for the grace of God. It definitely isn't too much for the Holy Spirit that will strengthen you in that hour of need. Philippians 2.13 says, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to fulfill his good purpose. So we can do what God calls us to do. It says that Jesus was in agony, being in agony. We see that just because Jesus was strengthened, it doesn't mean that he didn't feel. It doesn't mean that, that, that all of a sudden he was immune to the moment or the, or the emotions or the pain of the moment. And I love this about Jesus. I love that he feels. He wept at Lazarus's tomb. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. He was moved with compassion for the crowds. He's, his soul, the Bible tells us, was sorrowful to the point of death. John Calvin once said that Christ has put on our feelings along with our faith. Can we just pause for a moment to talk about how beautiful that is? That God did not just put on human flesh, but human feelings. That he has the same emotions and thoughts. And he battled with those same things as we do. One of my favorite bits of writing by the great theologian John Stott goes like this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could you worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid down, he laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross. 
which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. In my moments of pain, in my moments of hardship, I've been comforted by that same thought that Jesus has experienced pain. He has experienced death. He has experienced the tears and the hurt and the suffering. And so he is with me in those moments. We're not worshiping some disconnected, disinterested God. We're not praying to an apathetic, absent father. Our help is from a God who knows and a God who cares. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He's been there. Jesus has been there. And, when, and I, you know, I'm sure that you've experienced this as well, but when I've gone through something difficult, when I've gone through something hard, it awakens a compassion in me for people that go through the same thing after me that I didn't have before. Once I've experienced a certain area of hardship in my life, I'm able to love others better. And I have compassion. And when I hear that somebody is going through something that I had gone through before, my heart breaks for them. I want to reach out for them. I want to pray for them because I know what it feels like. The Bible says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. In other words, right now in heaven, Jesus stands at the right hand of God and he prays for you. He prays for you because he cares. He cares because he's sympathetic, because he has lived in the same world, facing the same things that you and I face. And so Jesus is praying for you right now. His sweat became like blood. And I love how just before that it says that the more agony he felt, the more earnestly he prayed. I think that's something we could also lean into. That so many times when we feel anxious or overwhelmed, we run after a whole bunch of different things. We think about different strategies and we try and alleviate the stress in any way possible. We come up with all kinds of coping mechanisms. But really the Bible has already given us the only thing we ever need in order to cope, in order to deal with anxiety. And that is prayer. The more pressure he felt, the more Jesus prayed. But that doesn't mean that he didn't experience the hardship. His sweat became like blood as he was facing the fear of his own death, this extreme anxiety. So the question is, why did he still do it? There's a simple answer, because he loves you. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy was that he knew that through the actions that he would take on the cross, through the death that he would die, that you and I would be reunited with him and with the Father. The Bible tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The thought of being reunited and reconciled with the people he so dearly loved is what caused Jesus to still go to the cross. It was his love for you. Romans 5.19 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Simply put, there was a time 
when Satan was angry with God, but could not defeat God. And so instead he defeated God's people. He defeated people and led us into a slavery to sin. And so man needed to defeat sin, needed to defeat Satan, needed to defeat death. And it was outside of the realm of our capability to do so. And so God's plan, this perfect plan, this plan of redemption was for him to become man. And in that moment, in the moment of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, man, in the person of Christ, defeated death and defeated the sin that enslaves us and set us free. That is why the Bible says that if if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. This is the freedom that God brought to our lives through Jesus, through his humanity. John 13 verse 3 to 5 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. This is a a beautiful prophetic image of what Jesus was doing for us. He was washing us. He was cleansing us. He was serving us. And he wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a beautiful moment that Jesus has with his disciples. He gets down and washes their feet. And in the 15th verse of that chapter, John 13, he says, For I have given you an example, Jesus said, that you should also do this as I have done to you. He knew who he was and he knew who he was going to, where he had come from, where he was going to, that he belonged to God, that he was a son of the Father. I believe that this is the key for all of us to living a deeply human and God-honoring life. We need to know where we come from that we were created by God for good works, that he has ordained certain things for us to walk in before there was even one of our days, that God loves us and cares for us and by our faith in Jesus has caused us to become the righteousness of God. When we know who we are, where we come from, when we know who we belong to and when we know who we're going to, where we're going, then there's no one more for us to impress. And we can do what Jesus did. We can lay aside our garments, anything that that would, would claim some earthly status. We can lay it aside. We can lay it down. And instead, we can choose to wash the feet of those around us. We can love. We can serve. We can give. We can sacrifice. We can live like Jesus lived because he has given us the victory, the grace to be both deeply human and to live a holy, God-honoring, servant-hearted life. And we're able to do it. And the reason is because he was the son of man. The son of God became a son of man to enable men to become sons of God. I hope this encourages you today.